glad to have everyone here physically, right? So we can feel the energy. So the thing is, we've been hearing a lot about Web3, blockchain, crypto, and we hear about it more and more from our friends, family, social media. That's why even companies like Walmart, um, FedEx, Shell Oil, and even fashion brands like Gucci have started to embrace blockchain technology. So the big overarching topic for today's panel is what's holding the others back? So we do want to get you know, deep dive into this. So first off, you know, let's all kind of get on the same page. What exactly is the difference between Web 2 and Web 3? And why do you think we should move away from Web 2? Um, anyone can free, yeah, be free to take it. I'll, okay. I'll stop. <laughs> Please. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to move away from Web 2 to Web 3. I think uh, depending on the industry, depending on the environment, each has its pros and cons. I think one of the great things about Web3 is that it's a new mechanism that we can use within the broader industry to actually execute uh, different types of contracts, different type of uh, logistical uh, situations in a way that you can't do as efficiently in a Web2 environment. There's pros and cons with Web3. I think Web3 as an ecosystem still has a long way to mature. I think things like latency and speed and transactional costs still have a lot of room for improvement. But at the same time, I also think things like security and the whole decentralization aspect of Web3 um, has a huge amount of potential. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every company in the world needs to jump on Web3 and it's going to suddenly be the savior of what they have. Um, but nonetheless, I do think that Web3 as a technology and as a concept has a huge amount of opportunity. It's just how companies decide to execute on that. Um, NFTs, for example, when they were first conceptualized, um, they were used for very basic points of sale for pixelated art at, the, at its very basics. But the underlying concept of an NFT has so much more attached to it. You can use it as an actual contract of sale. You can use it as a history of sale for a number of different related products. And we, I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit more later on. But I think in general, Web3 as like kind of the NFT ecosystem is slowly maturing. Uh, you're going to see the same thing in the broader Web3 space as a whole. And as you're continuing to get more and more big firms investing, and as we continue to get a lot of very cool startups getting into this space and providing new innovation, um, I think you're only going to see this space mature more and more. Yeah, great answer. Now, Toby, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I, <clears throat> I think we are very early days. Um, I think there are a number of uh, real-world pain points and barriers to entry uh, before we can actually see any sort of meaningful transition. Uh, by way of example, I, I haven't yet come across a blockchain that can handle any uh, meaningful volume of transactions without having downtime and outages. Um, if HSBC decided to build uh, a banking app on top of Solana, then they would be left with having to explain 
to their customer base why their online banking app stopped working for no less than 13 times this year. Uh, there are some significant challenges there. Blockchains, uh, like any network, they haven't been stress tested yet with any meaningful volume of transactions. Uh, one of our DeFi platforms ran all of our traffic over the Elrond network uh, for three months. And it's, it's really, it's, it's an average of 5,000 transactions a day. And we were responsible for 6% of the entire Elrond network. That has a market cap of like $6 billion. Can someone please explain to me how, how that's possible? There's, a, there's one more point I've got before I, I hand it on to you, which is also there is a mental barrier. I was speaking to one of the largest car manufacturers in the world today. Um, there, I think there are quite a few people in this room who, who can imagine who it is, because we're their blockchain partner and we're, we're going to announce it. And we've, we've set up an e-wallet for them and we've, we've done a, a cross-chain uh, loyalty token that we're going to be shipping in December. And we said, right, let's talk about the roadmap. I said, okay, great, let's talk about the roadmap. They said, now we're going to convert this loyalty token, which is only usable within their own ecosystem, and now we're going to list it on the public markets. And they're like, great, so we can still control all of the tokens, right? It's like, no, you can't control all of the tokens. At that point in time, they leave your ecosystem and they move into the wider world. And they were like, do you mean we no longer have control over our tokens? It's like, yeah, that's exactly it. They're like, <gasps> we can't do that. It was like, well, Porsche and Audi have done it. And they've gone, <gasps> Porsche and Audi have done it, but how can we do it? It's like, well, you have to do this. And they went, well, we don't know how we're going to do that. So then trying to get over that barrier, that mental barrier for traditional... <clears throat> Who's German in there? Put your hand in your hair for the German. Right, there we go. There's Chris. That's the largest crypto influencer in the whole world. We have a German, a German in the room. Hello, Chris. They, that mentality of losing control, which is a large part of moving from Web 2 to Web 3, try and convince an airline. Airlines give birth to kittens when you trade their air miles on a gray market. If you buy air miles on a gray market, it's deemed illegal in Europe. Now we're actually trying to convince airlines that their tokens should be traded on the public market. And so now we have to overcome that mindset with these companies. And there are going to be a few early movers in the space, like Porsche and Audi in the car manufacturing business. And then people, other companies, are going to find themselves in a position where we go, FOMO, we're getting left behind. Christ, what are we going to have to do to catch up with everyone? So I think there are massive use cases, but there are significant barriers to entry today that we have to overcome. And I hope I haven't answered any of your questions beforehand. <laughs> Michael, help me here. Right, so I've got a, a slightly different view, maybe a bit of a provocative view in terms of um, similarities that, that, that Toby's mentioning. But also, I think if we reflect historically on Web1, if you think back to what that was, it was decentralized, it was open protocols and services, Literally, no organizations controlled it centrally. Everybody could use it. And it had the uh, ability to provide read access only. So if you remember those old HTTP and email services, that was it. Fast forward to early 
2000s and we get Web 2 where, you know, Eureka, we can actually write uh, in terms of the capability. It's going towards centralized, in, in other words, data aggregation, companies controlling, et cetera, et cetera. The open standards and products disappear and there's centralized control. Web3 literally takes us back to the beginning in terms of it's decentralized, we can read, we can write. Oh, and by the way, we can now own whatever is created. What does that mean, actually, if we think about it? It means that whatever we create, we own, and therefore you can monetize and tokenize whatever you have. That is the major uptick in terms of why Web3 is picking up. And I find it very interesting when I speak to senior executives in, in their various firms, specifically financial services, and then I look at the other scale, which is like the disruptive and the cool fintech companies, there is this, I guess, contradiction in terms of the objectives and, and, and where this is gonna go. But the reality is that Web3 is not in the future, it is here. There are a multitude of pilots happening. It creates that incentivization. And I think in terms of what you were referring to with digital identification, you just have to do a bit of research and you'll find the multitude of organizations who are now investing, innovating, disruptive on digital identification to solve those problems of the airline NFT you were talking about. So it's an incredibly exciting space. I, I think in terms of anybody who is a, um, should, we, should we say hater in terms of Web3, um, there's a lot of contradiction, a lot of confusion. You know, when I speak to people, they go, oh, Web3, it's crypto, it's blockchain, it's metaverse. What is it exactly? Actually, what it is, is it's the underlying primitive which su supports digital assets and has an underlying infrastructure of blockchain which supports all of these different use cases, DeFi, Metaverse, GameFi, NFTs, and all of these new innovative business models that are coming out. So um, I think in terms of the airline industries, I don't know one, which, one of the leading in, in airline industries that's not looking at NFTs and not looking at taking it forward, regardless of the pain points, which is really, really interesting. Right. And over to you. Thanks very much. I have to go last. Um, I think f for me, the exciting thing about the move to Web3 is really around the data and the fact that the data ownership shifts and allows dis disintermediation on a number of platforms. Um, DID is, especially coming from the travel industry, DID is such an important concept. So give one example. Um, a major pain point for any traveler going to a hotel is the check-in process and spending interminable hours trying to get through that process. God, if you go to the Marina Bay Sands, where there are 800 hotel rooms for a conference, you're waiting two hours to get through the front desk. Imagine if you could just shoot that hotel, your data on your way to the hotel, get a virtual key card, and just go straight to your room. Now, you can do that with some chains. There are some chains that are already working on this, already provide this, but unless you're hostage to a chain, you're a road warrior, and all you collect all your points with Marriott Hilton, it's not interoperable, it's, 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 it's dedicated and proprietary to that chain. The beauty with Web3 is that actually you can create this in the blockchain and you can give the power to the user to then transmit that, that information to any hotel that they want to 
um, check into rather than reside with, with a major operator who controls the data and controls the access. And I think for me, that's a really exciting thing, that, that opportunity to start destroying some of the, the platform hegemony that, that the monopolies that exist today through the use of data is, is a really exciting opportunity. Perfect. You know, we keep talking a lot about the use cases, and I think this is really important to kind of paint a picture of why exactly companies are adopting Web3 and why it's a meaningful shift. So let's get into this. Um, in your opinion, are there any real-life use cases that have like successfully you know, adopted Web3 technology and are actually gaining traction? And if so, you know, please give us an example on why you think that could be the gold standard for that industry. Uh, I guess I'll go first. <laughs> I think in terms of uh, use cases, um, there's a number of use cases which are in place and which are effective, efficient, and consistent, and actually having a huge uptake within organizations. Unfortunately, a lot of those, because of the nascency, are internal initiatives. When we talk about public, you know, the, the couple that spring to mind are in financial services, as it is foundational. So banking, uh, if we look at Aave, if we look at a number of other players who are looking at their platform, the blockchain, and how they've developed it, you know, the stance they've taken is taking away, if we look at the top, you would have deposits, borrowers, underneath that you would have uh, a, pub, a private ledger and various capabilities built in an organization, and then sitting under there you'd have senior management and shareholders. Well, surprise, surprise, in the Web3 environment, in the use case, the top layers stay the same, depositors, borrowers. As we move down the chain, you've got the public ledger, which is obviously on blockchain, and then you've got the uh, decentralized apps, which are working through smart contracts. The big difference is when you get to the bottom layer in terms of a decentralized autonomous organization. It's all about digital tokens and interoperability with traditional fiat systems and how that works, uh, especially for the more traditional banks. It's like, how do we use this use case? And secondly, the shareholders, um, you know, disappear in terms of the decentralization. That use case, although it was originally founded in financial services for banking, has now been starting to lift out as a foundational use case in entertainment, in retail, in mining, in automotive, etc. So I think last time I checked, we have about 150 different use cases at different variants of success and ability to acquire customers. And once you acquire the customer, how do you retain the customer? So if we, we look at some examples, I'm not gonna mention the companies, but the use cases, we create something in the metaverse based on Web3 and blockchain. We get users to go to it. There's a huge uptake of like people who are curious, and then all of a sudden the numbers drop. There's a lack of sustainability in terms of that use case. So I, I hope that's helpful. Maybe, maybe Toby has a, a couple of really interesting use cases on blockchain. Well, no, I think I can actually probably give you a use case where it is sustainable and one that you will particularly actually, uh, I know for all of you guys, I don't know about you, but, uh, but, but you three, I know you will appreciate. Um, one uh, project is called Hollow Ride. Hollow Ride is built on top of the Elrond platform. 
Uh, before I go any further, can you just, is, people raise your hands if you've got kids in the room. You've got kids, right? Okay, we're good here. Well, I don't know how relevant this is going to be. All right, well, you were all a kid once. Let's start there, shall we? And we've, those of us that are parents uh, who will drive a car from here to Huahin, anything over 20 minutes, um, the invariable whinge incurs, are we nearly there yet? And then it continues, and it continues, and it continues, and it continues. Are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? Well, Porsche and Audi, it was actually an executive at, from Audi, a senior executive, came up with an idea to place headsets, Oculus, in the back of the vehicles. So when the whinge starts, are we nearly there yet? You go, you've got to put on the headset and you transport your children into the metaverse, and then the whinge stops. Oliver looks particularly excited about this. You're actually going to go and buy an Audi as a result, aren't you? I'm not marketing Audi tonight, I promise. But everything you do within the metaverse requires the token economy to kick in. You've now got to go, Dad, can I get your credit card, please? I need to buy tokens, because I need another weapon so I can kill my sister that's sitting next to me. Not literally. And anything, anything to shut them up, take my credit card. <laughs> so I'm giving you a sustainable business model, I would say, as a result. And, and now, by Q1 of next year, every single Audi that gets shipped, or sorry, 90% of them, will all have Oculus headsets in the back of the car that you need to plug into the token economy to buy all of the different assets within it all based on the Elrond blockchain. And so that's a very novel use case, I would say, that is being rolled out for mass adoption you know, in the next five months. I think we'll see a lot more of that. I think airlines, you know, it's never fun flying in economy, is it? You know, I could definitely see myself partaking in that, let alone my daughter. <laughs> I think, um, from my point of view, I've been involved in a couple of different interesting projects especially based in Asia, uh, the remittance side of things is quite a big thing over here. And what we, what we found um, through some of my other uh, previous uh, endeavors has been it's very hard for someone in Southeast Asia that doesn't have a, a regular 95 type job necessarily to set up a bank account. And yet you have people working overseas that want to transfer money back to their home country and right now you have to use certain payment providers to be able to do that and obviously it's, it's not a very efficient way and, uh, and, and they take a pretty large cut out of, uh, out of the transaction. One of the projects that I was involved in a number of years ago uh, was actually trying to leverage the blockchain so that you mitigate some of the FX related um, exposure risk going from country A to country B and enabling clients to have a wallet on their phone so that they didn't actually need to have a bank account directly associated with it. We found that by implementing this type of technology uh, through a partner remittance company of ours that we were working with, um, they were able to save a significant amount of money uh, from their inter-FX uh, inter costs, which they were able to rely or give back directly to the clients, but also they were able to, to attain new clients because they were no longer 
depending on having a bank account that you could then deposit fiat directly into. I thought that was quite an interesting uh, methodology in terms of being able to leverage the blockchain in general to benefit people that traditionally wouldn't be able to have access to this type of technology and they don't need to know how it works behind the scenes, but all they need to know now is that they don't have to try and get a bank account or even worse, go through other third party people that will uh, will take even more of their funds, shall we say, uh, for illicit purposes. The second area that I was working on as well was also ironically with an automobile company um, where they were looking to adopt tokenization and the general blockchain ecosystem around their leasing part of their business. So they had a very successful leasing business where as a car manufacturer they would lease their cars to a number of different uh, companies around the world. Um, but they wanted to introduce blockchain into their ecosystem. So what that allowed them to do was to better trace and track the life cycle of that car. They were able to tell exactly how many miles were being done in that car. They were able to tell, okay, what type of services was it, did it need throughout its lifestyle? Uh, was there any major issues that had a recurring theme across multiple cars? And throughout that, their, their plan was that, okay, not only can they better price to their particular outsourcing uh, lenders, a better pricing around the usage of their cars, but ultimately from a longer term product perspective, they were able to better identify what were the product issues that they were seeing within their cars uh, in a real, real world environment. And right now in, in the traditional sense, they're not able to really do that. If someone has a problem with their car, they go to a local garage, get it fixed. But the manufacturer, unless there's a real major recall, they don't really know about this. Whereas implementing this type of technology through the blockchain and them having access to this type of data real time, they're able to have a much more uh, deeper set of data that they can analyze. And their thinking is that they can produce more reliable and better cars in the future. And so they're kind of two use case scenarios I've seen, which I think have been quite interesting. Right. You know, I'm listening to this and I was like, wait, you know, no the kind of thing. Then the question is, why isn't every automobile manufacturer doing this already? And what are the challenges that's like really stopping them? You know, Darren, do you have any opinions around this? Around. <laughs> yeah, around like, you know, what are the real challenges that manufacturers, supply chains, these type of enterprises are facing before they can really adopt in a Web3 use cases? So I can't necessarily speak to you to manufacturers, but I think, I think, I think the challenge that everyone's got is these are all great ideas and these are you know, compelling sounding use cases, but I don't think any of them have really gained great traction in, 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 the, play, in the marketplace at the moment. I think quite frankly, there is a, a hurdle with, with users to get them to think about moving to Web3 products. What is, what is it solving for them? What is, what is it that, that it's going to achieve that they can't, they can't achieve today? Um, it, the, the use case that, that, that Mark presented around remittance is a great example, actually, of something that has clear value and that people would definitely adopt. But I think there are so many use cases at the moment where it's a little bit hard to say, yes, that's a compelling reason why I need to be getting involved and excited about Web3. Um, I think those 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 Proof points are not yet out there ready to say that these ideas are actually going to crystallize and something very material. 
as, as you understand, sorry, sorry. Um, being, being from a traditional financial services ecosystem as well, uh, back in the day, I also think one of the biggest challenges is around the technology side of things. Um, Web3 is great. The potential of what you can do with it is huge. But if you're looking at mainstream firms that already have an incumbent technology process, how do you get them to integrate this new Web3 ecosystem into their pre-existing processes? You can't be naive and think that they're suddenly going to drop everything they've been doing to date and suddenly adopt this new Web3 way of doing things. There's got to be an integration process into how they're currently doing the day-to-day -day stuff. And I think, especially with like, like I use financial services because that's my, that's my background. Um, trying to get even a non-crypto-based technology integrated into a bank is a challenge. And you then push it into this next dimension of trying to get this whole Web3 ecosystem integrated. Suddenly, you're now faced with a huge amount of cost on the banking side because suddenly they have to either hire new tech experts that know how to integrate this type of thing into their current systems or they have to outsource it to third-party consultants to, uh, to, to, to integrate into their systems as well, which I think is a better idea. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, um, but ultimately, nonetheless, whichever way you want to approach it, there's a cost. And kind of going back to the point raised about what's the value add? I mean, there's always going to be a number of value adds attached to migrating from your current way of doing things to Web3. But there's also a significant cost. So you've got to do the whole cost-benefit analysis side of things and figure out, okay, do we do this now or do we do it later? And unfortunately, in the banking mindset, there's always that view of, okay, well, let's just do it next year. Let's just do it next year. Let's just do it next year. To the point where we never end up fully maturing into the product that it needs to be. Um, but I, I, I definitely think if um, as as firms continue to build these Web3 products, thinking about, okay, well, how do we tie it into these pre-existing companies that you want to be your target audience? That should be a part of your mindset as well, because I think right now there's a big reliance on, okay, we've built this awesome product, and then we get these clients to figure out how to integrate it into their systems. And I don't think that's the right approach right now, I think it's a case of you as the developers and as the, as the guys leading this new way of doing things have to think, okay, you have to take on that burden a little bit more rather than relying on your end clients potentially having to take on that burden. Right. Well, that's exactly why we have protocols like CoinWeb, right? To simplify the tech lane. <laughs> I hope it's not expensive. Uh, 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 <laughs> all right, all right, thanks. Shameless plug. <laughs> uh, I'm going to throw this one out at Michael a little bit, sitting next to me on my right. Um, the, we, at CoinWeb, we, we built a protocol, um, like there are many protocols out there, and, and these protocols all make the same promise. We're solving the blockchain trilemma, right? We're going to, men, we're going to scale whilst maintaining decentralization and security. Wonderful. It's, 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 it's a real challenge to try and get your voice heard amongst the million other people saying that 
that have never written a line of code. Um, so what we end up doing at CoinWeb is building product that is useful for, in the first instance, enterprise business and corporates pre-launching uh, on mainnet when we fully expect developers or hope the developers will build on top of us via public SDKs and APIs, which is all the other projects do, so that we can drive adoption in the first instance. And we then go out to corporates, pretty much I would imagine like Michael does, and this is why I'm gonna hand it over to you in a second. And we say to them, are you interested in blockchain technology? And they go, yes, we are. And they say, oh, fantastic, what would you like to do? And they say, we've got no clue, but we know we want to get involved. And so then we, we end up running these workshops with them, workshop after workshop, saying, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this, coming up with the different areas. These are what the trade-offs are, these are what the upsides are, these are what the downsides are. And then we try and identify a sweet spot with them, and then we scope the project, and then we, go, we, we run off and build it. But they don't actually know what it is that they want. They just know that they want something and they want to be involved. They don't want to be left out. And then the next pain point that exists is these guys don't have the specialist developers that you've gone and mentioned. You should see some of my developers. They look like they come out of Star Trek. I can't imagine them walking into the office of Uber. I just can't. They're usually the best developers, actually. They are the best developers. Uber wouldn't understand it. <laughs> so we then become that bridge to try and say, look, this is what we're going to build for you, and uh, we'll hide these guys in the basement, and we'll roll out some very presentable people. Where's Jürgen and Anton? There we are. There he is. Presentable. I.e. presentable. <laughs> and then we keep the rest of them in our basement to, to hide them away, because they, they are not presentable. And, but to get our hands on these developers is hard work. Since we launched our token and became a top 500 project in the market, oh, thank you, Chris, it was, it was that traction that we get, and we will get more traction as we go up that, that, that ranking as such, because the lowest form of due, uh, you know, touch point on due diligence is, oh, what, where are you at CoinMarketCap or on CoinGecko? And, and that's how we have that entry point into it. But we need to get those developers. And here's the real pain point. Polkadot have cash and they have tokens. And so they can remunerate their developer team in two different ways outside of what IBM or Apple or any of these other guys can do. They overpay them because they're overfunded and they use the liquidity of their projects and their tokens to do it. And so there's a brain drain. You get the top 50 projects in the world soaking up anyone that can spell Rust or Haskell. Yes? And at that point in time, the likes of a corporate business that just want to go and do it on their own and build on top of a blockchain, they're like, well, hang on a minute. We don't pay our other developers that amount. And they don't want to come to us because we're not going to pay them because we don't have a dual form of remuneration to entice them. Now, all of that will change as more developers train themselves in, in these different coding languages and developers become available, and they will be able to acquire them. But that is a massive pain point and a, a barrier to entry, I would say, for, for adoption today. I don't know how you find it. So I guess there's, there's two points. 
Um, let, let me handle the, the latter first. So in terms of brain, brain drain and skills, um, so we did a, a survey last year, I think across the globe in terms of Web3 developers, 34,000 new developers moved into the market in, in terms of Rust, in terms of solidity, in terms of a multitude. So that's great news. It made me think a little bit about the cloud revolution, if we think back to that and how it evolved and cloud skills and how automatically as soon as organizations started moving to cloud, developers, programmers became in demand. The same with SAP and ERP systems. My gosh, those contractors way back then got paid uh, amazingly well that they could retire, you know, when they reached their early uh, sort of early 30s. Um, we're seeing the same thing. So completely agree with you uh, in terms of that. I guess retention of staff as well to keep them enthused and innovative because if you're a developer, you don't want to be working on supply chain use cases all the time. You want to be doing the cool stuff in terms of you know, being revolutionary, having new ideas, etc. So there's that element as well. I think in terms of your first question, uh, sort of first hypothesis in, in terms of organizations, I find it amazing. Uh, a lot of organizations I speak to go, metaverse, we're a bank. Our competitors are moving into metaverse. They've created a branch. We need to create one, right? We need to create one. Do you? Do you really? So um, have you thought about this? Have you defined what the problem statement is? Have you looked at your existing business model? I think the point you were making, Mark, in terms of interoperability between, you've got this massive bank that's operating and doing pretty well. You've got the digital assets coming up. How do you put the two together? Different mindsets, different skills, different technologies. How the hell do you do it? There is one consolation in the fact that blockchain is not new. It's been around for ages in terms of supply chain, in terms of use cases that work in mining, automotive, financial services. So at least there's a little bit of awareness in, in organizations because they have a small blockchain team sitting in some basement somewhere, uh, developing the technology skills, developing the use cases, and it's seamless to the user. So the user doesn't know it's blockchain. And I think that's where the Web3 is going to go. It's going to become seamless. It's going to be immersive. It's going to be interactive. You're going to be able to own stuff. The kids in the back of the car can own stuff, but they can also start trading. I think that's going to be the scary thing, uh, Toby, when, when your kids start trading. She <laughs> already gonna... is. She's <laughs> seven. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, but you know, the, I guess the, the key things from traditional organizations I've seen is, like, I always push back and challenge and say, what is the problem you're trying to solve for? Is it a case of fixing existing problems? Is it a case of appealing to Gen Z or Gen Alpha and how, that, how, you, how you pull those um, customers into your fold and how you keep them? Or actually, is it about the trilemma? Which for me is probably the most exciting part. Yes, there's pain points around scalability, interoperability, but we're pretty nascent. We're in an exciting time where things are developing. And I, I think, you know, maybe in a year's time sitting here, everyone in the, in the room will be going, ah, oh, Web3 is so old now. You know, you know what's, the next, what's the next big thing? Right. 
I think the um, only thing to add really is around, I guess, oh, how, how do you fund these projects? So if you're, if you're an existing business, and I got I lived there for a couple of years, uh, Agoda, it's okay, we feel like we need to do something. There's a little bit of FOMO out there. You feel you need to get involved in the space. A, because it feels that it's, it's something big is going to happen here, but also, frankly, because as a semi-innovative tech company, you want to keep your engineers excited and interested to be working for you. So you want to get them in, in, excited about working on a new project and something new, a new field. But then you look at so and, and a lot of cynicism appears in companies. You talk about, okay, um, how about we try this? So, for example, we talked about maybe we could um, fractionalize property ownership and create an Airbnb-type product where we own the properties. And then you, you answer, like, well, you can do that. Too. Why, why do you need that? You can create a rate or something and get investment externally in order to fund that. So I think that there's a, there's a, a challenge finding the right opportunity within, within an organization that actually is worth doing and that the business case is compelling and that you can't do using your existing technologies or people um, to do. I think, I think if you're a new company moving into the space, then it becomes a question, okay, well, how do I fund it today? Because today, things have changed a little bit from last year. The capital fund flows are less generous than they used to be. And you also happen to, to Meta this week, where they've been told to show a little bit of restraint and pair back by 66% the amount they're spending on, on the Metaverse. So do projects get funded to the same scale? And if they don't, how on earth can you afford the talent that Toby's talking about that is you know, increasing but still still difficult to source at a very competitive marketplace. I, I still believe that that's almost secondary. I, I believe that companies in this space are gonna be shown a little bit more patience than companies working in traditional spaces by investors. They understand the business models aren't set. They understand that going the path to profitability might not be clear. They understand the business models might need to change. I think that money is still out there for those, those people who are going out there and trying to seek investment. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a blocker but it's certainly more challenging today than it was a year ago to, to get those funds um, in, in general, from the, certainly from the mainstream investors. I, I guess just to add on to that as well, we've got two major issues, right? Number one, we're entering recession. Number two- We're in a recession. We're entering even worse recession, I would say, Toby. Yeah, but true. Uh, the second is investors are becoming a, a little bit more careful in terms of the return on investment and what they're investing in. Uh, there's a multitude of organizations out there that have been used to free-flowing capital and investment to develop cool, cool stuff. Now the question is, and it's always been about valuation and an uptick in uh, upside in the company. Now questions are being asked around what's your profitability, what's your business model, what's the output? Sorry, I just wanted to add. No, no. Uh, I fully support you on that. I, I mean, I, I've been involved in venture capital in the past, and um, I think this, this current market ecosystem is a good opportunity for the venture capital side of the industry to sit back and say, okay, well, let's perhaps look at this a little bit more seriously as to, okay, what's the book value? When, when are they actually going to break even? Everything else, whereas... Even last year, um, I, I was involved in a in a project where we were we were looking to do something, and the company we were speaking to had an extremely high valuation that they were looking at, and they weren't going to be breaking even for another five years, and yet the valuation that they were asking for was extremely high. However, the reason they were allowed to 
feel that they could put such high valuation was because if you had a look at what their competitors were getting in the landscape, they were getting even higher valuations from what they were asking. Doesn't mean it's the right valuation, but it's what the market was willing to pay at that moment in time. And so I think the fact that you have seen a deflation and you've seen a lot of the venture capital firms revenue or valuations of portfolios going down 40 to 60% recently is because kind of this whole FOMO thing and people were like, okay, well, we got to jump in now because if we don't jump in now, we're going to miss the boat, all of this type of stuff. And it's now come back to bite them on some of their investments. Can we, so, can, can we change the subject? Is that yeah, possible? You should be covering your I want to change the subject. The hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. Well, I do have one final question. And the thing is... Being in the middle of uh, like a, a pre-Series A race. <laughs> for equity, I may add. Yeah, let's, let's brush off that pressure. We, do you not want me to sleep tonight? <laughs> yeah. But speaking of investors, um, you're right. They are being a lot more careful, right? And they're doing a lot more due diligence. And one thing they always ask is, what's your product like? Is it good? They're no longer investing into white papers or just demo videos. So they know that product is very important. And that means user experience. Because at the end of the day, if the retail doesn't adopt it, you know, why build this amazing technology? So my final question is, how do you think user experience can influence the speed of Web3 adoption? I think it really helps if people don't know it's Web3. Can we start there? It doesn't necessarily need to have blockchain stamped all over it. If blockchain, in large part, is the underlying engine that is driving an application that is, is delivering, in turn, some sort of increased usability of a product, I think, you know, thumbs up. I think we will move away from the speculative uh, uh, aspects and values of crypto into usability shortly, and, and people don't necessarily need to know that this is a blockchain, <coughs> excuse me, a blockchain product. So, so I think, Toby, in order to make the hairs on the back of your neck go down, I think the one consolation is that it's exactly about the user experience. It's about seamless. It's not understanding what the underlying technology is. It's actually just enjoying it, being immersed in the technology um, and the user experience. I think the fundamental difference is that the incentivization that I mentioned earlier is not possible without Web3. So even though the investors are being a little bit more conservative, they still appreciate the fact that it is the future, it is the way that, that things are going, and users are looking for that user experience, that immersive user experience. Yes, the technology isn't quite there in terms of some of the graphics, in terms of some of the experiences, but, you know, give it a while. Give it a while. It's very similar to the gaming practice. Just, just one last point on that. But wouldn't you agree if there was an incentivization module in the technology, let's say there's a wallet, for example, then that user experience really needs to replicate, you know, your Royal Bank of Scotland banking app or something along those lines, seed phrases and all of this. They all need to be abstracted away. It consoli exactly, consolidation of one single place to go. I mean, the one pain point I always get from non-crypto people or non-digital asset people is, how the hell do you use a, a wallet? How do you do it? How do you use MetaMask? It's not user-friendly. 
it's not, well, in terms of you're initially using the product. Once you know how it works, it's fine. But Michael, what do you think about the Coinbase and the Binance wallets? They're shit, aren't they? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Which one do you think is better? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Maybe over drink no later, idea. we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my view. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, UX is, UX is key, and I'm going to touch on that point. But you, 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 UX is key, I think. But on top of UX, also the stability, security, and the trust element is also going to be key. So you could have a great UX, but if you go down, like you were mentioning about Solana earlier on, if, if, you've, if you've got a technology that keeps on going down and that's unreliable, you could have the best UX experience in the world. But if you don't have that stability tied into it, then you're not going to get that trust from the broader audience. And also, like, security. I mean, how many times have we heard, even recently, of all these different hacks where different wallets or different blockchains have been hacked into and certain money's been taken and you've got bounties being paid to get the money back? All of this is negative for the broader industry. And in order to get the adoption rate even higher, you need to be able to make sure that everything that's being released has a good quality of code to it, has that security element tied into it, has that stability, and of course, as once again, as you were mentioning earlier on, the volume and throughput side of things. Because if you have a, a particular technology and for whatever reason the markets are going up or down and you have a high amount of throughput any one particular day, if your blockchain can't handle that, then once again, you're, you're gonna be turning off your user experience. So, to me, UX is more than just how easy is it to use, and I completely agree. It should be seamless to users. They should know what necessarily happens behind the scenes, but also you need to make sure that you have all of these other elements tied into it as well. CoinWeb. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a slightly different stance on this. I think UX is critical um, if you are in a market where there are alternatives. I think if there are no alternatives and you're providing a service people want, people are going to put up with something that's incredibly hideous and really difficult to use. As an example, both Binance and Coinbase, frankly, are incredibly difficult to use. I mean, just going there as an as a initial, initial customer, it takes a big, big learning curve to understand how to use these products. Um, Quite frankly, it's true. Uh, and obviously, that will improve over time. But in the absence of alternatives, then people are going to put up with a bad user experience. Um, so uh, listen, I, I think user experience is, is definitely fundamental when you do have competition. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the be all and end all. You, you do first have to find a compelling reason for people to use your product. And if you do, then it doesn't matter if they have to put up with a bit of pain in the, at the outset to, to get onto it. Yeah, wonderful insights. You know, unfortunately, time does fly by, and we do need to wrap up. But you know, if you do want to learn more about Web3, you just have questions, or do you want to say hi, uh, come talk to the experts. We are blockchain nerds, so we love talking about this stuff. So yeah, thank you for the panelists. Um, thank you for CoinWeb for hosting thank the Thank you event. for having us. And thank you to everyone thank for coming you. tonight. Thank you. Thank you, guys.